You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. As we continue in our time of worship, if you would turn to John chapter 10. Thank you, Adam, choir, orchestra, James Brown trio. But there's no James Brown. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy them a whole lot more than James Brown. Wouldn't you agree? And I gotta, I, I, I've made this observation before, but it's always a joy to hear Lake viewers sing. You're a singing people. You've been singing uh, since I've been here 24 years ago as an intern. I'm just, you're a singing church. But then there's something uniquely joyful about when the choir joins us. It's like we have reinforcements. Uh, so you have the choir now with us, and it just it, it goes to a new level. I, I'm sure you feel the same way, Adam, um, as you're leading. Well, we're going to be in John 10, 1 to 10 this morning to get at the heart of our passage. If you would look with me in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, that is the sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. Let's pray. Father, most of us here have experienced that abundant life by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus, our great shepherd. And yet we recognize that we can grow in our experience of that abundant life as well. I pray that we could do that today, even as we consider this passage. But Lord, I recognize some here today have not experienced that because they do not know the shepherd. I pray that by your sovereign grace this morning, they would come to know the shepherd through repentance and faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a well-known story in Alaska that goes back to 1910 where you have four Mounties headed into a treacherous part of that state by dog sled hoping to make it to Dawson City. Well, here's the problem. Their guide didn't know where he was going. And they got lost and they wandered endlessly for days on end in blizzard-like conditions. They eventually had to eat their dogs and even boiled their bootlaces in order to survive. But they ended up dying anyway. And what's remarkable about their track is that where they died was just 
a, a close proximity to where they started so many days earlier. They had made no progress because of a blind guide, a guide who had no clue where he was, where he was going. Well, so monumental was that event that they named the local highway the Lost Patrol. Well, as tragic as that event is, there's something much more eternally tragic about blind and lost spiritual guides. Tim Challies, a few years back, wrote an article about the different kinds of uh, lost spiritual guides. Um, there is the heretic who teaches us what contradicts essential doctrines of the faith. Perhaps they deny the Trinity or uh, the two natures of Christ and the one person of Christ or salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. There's the charlatan who uses his position and uses the faith, for that matter, for personal gain. There's the prophet um, who claims new revelation. And we have a a sufficient 66-book revelation. We don't need a new word. Um, there's the abuser who uses his position to take advantage of others to feed his lust. There's the tickler. The tickler is one who, who just wants to draw a crowd. And so he tickles the ears of his people, giving them what they want to hear. And then there is the speculator who is obsessed with novelty and speculation rather than the clear teaching of the Word of God. Well, if I could add one more to that list that I think encapsulates many that these, of these that he, he drew out, there's the legalist, the legalist, the one who, who teaches that eternal life comes through human merit and works. And it's deadly, eternally deadly. As we approach chapter 10 of the Gospel of John, we see, as we've already seen in our passage, the consummate legalist. The Jewish leaders of the day uh, who had turned... Uh, the law of God into a mountain to climb in order to get to God. And not only that, they had added obstacle courses on that path, tradition. Now, as we approach this passage, there's no indication. This is one of those places where the chapter division is not helpful. The chapter divisions were added later. The, the verses, for that matter, were added later for the benefit of the reader, but sometimes it doesn't benefit us because chapter 10 continues the conversation from chapter 9. Um, there, there's no change of time. There's no change of setting. The same people are involved as we look at chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 9, Jesus has exposed the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of the day. And now in chapter 10, he's going to show us 
how this spiritual blindness has affected their roles as the shepherds of the people of God. As he will say in Luke 6, can a blind man lead a blind man? Of course, there he's referring to spiritual blindness. Um, Will they not both fall into a pit? Or Matthew 15, 14. They are blind guides, referring to these very people. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So both places, he's warning that if you follow a blind guide, if you follow a false shepherd, you will fall into a pit. In other words, disaster follows those who follow blind guides. Conversely, he has shown us the effects of following the good shepherd. We saw it at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, where the formerly blind man now confesses, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That's the order. You believe, and the first fruits of believing is worship. That's the fruit of following the good shepherd. And now at the beginning of chapter 10, he's going to give us more insights on the ministry of the good shepherd by contrasting the good shepherd with all the false shepherds of the day. And so we see in the first six verses, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the good shepherd of the sheep. Look with me in chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, the Greek would be amen, amen, where we get the word amen, or or verily, verily. Uh, Truly, truly, this this is something we need to take note of when he says that. I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. The context, the thieves and the robbers are the Pharisees. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So in those days, there was one central sheepfold in every particular community. And so the people who owned sheep, which was most people, they couldn't afford one shepherd. And so they would would put these sheep into the community sheepfold Uh, to be kept at night, and then uh, they would all pitch in and hire one gatekeeper uh, who who would watch over the sheep. And it was his job to do that, to protect them during the night. In the morning, the, the gatekeeper would open up the gate to those who were truly the owners, the shepherds of the sheep. Well, the thieves and the robbers are clearly, in this passage... The religious shepherd, the religious leaders and the the false shepherds, the Pharisees, who are clearly more interested in benefiting from the sheep than being their guardians 
and their gods. They are the leaders that we read about in chapter 9 who should have had ears to hear the claims of Christ, who should have had eyes to behold the works of Christ. But these thieves and robbers, which would have been scandalous language of the day, they got their positions of leadership without the blessing of the gatekeeper. But the shepherds enter the door because the sheep was theirs. Of course, when a shepherd entered the sheepfold, uh, the sheep would have been interspersed. They wouldn't have stayed in their particular groups owned by one particular individual. They would have been interspersed. So how would all of these various sheep know that this particular shepherd was their shepherd? They would recognize his voice. In fact, there's various stories about people uh, who, who have tried to, uh, to, to check this out. Uh, so they would put on the, the clothing of a particular shepherd, but the sheep don't respond because they only respond to the voice of the shepherd. In fact, the bond that the shepherd had with his sheep was so intimate that he had nicknames for each one of them. He would call each of his sheep by name. So in this analogy, the gatekeeper, now some say the gatekeeper is the law and uh, some say it's John the Baptist, but I believe that the, the gatekeeper here is the father and, and Jesus is the shepherd who knows the name of his sheep. Now, doesn't it occur, encourage you when someone you thought barely knows you, calls you by name. Something as simple as that is deeply encouraging to me. I don't know about you. In fact, one of the frustrating things about transitioning to Lakeview is I left a place where I knew everybody's name and we got here and we're having to learn names. And that's been frustrating for me because I want to know everybody's name because there's something uniquely encouraging and enriching about uh, being called by your name. Back in 1994, my aunt, who, who used to work for Sports Illustrated, she, she had the job of entertaining uh, advertisers with Sports Illustrated, so she would go to all of these major sporting events, and she would, she would entertain these advertisers, and, and she would hire athletes to be a part of that, and, and one of the guys she always hired, who became one of her good friends, was Rolf Benerska, uh, who was the, the kicker for the San Diego Chargers. And they were never in the Super Bowl, so that worked out uh, for, for him. And, and so I got to know him pretty well. I would go down there, and, he, and she would hire me at these Super Bowls to be a, a driver or do grunt work. I was just an errand runner, but it was worth going down for. And, and so I was with Rolf in the hotel uh, restaurant one day, and he said, I, uh, I, want you to, I want to introduce you to a couple of people. And so we walk over to a table, and this is very arbitrary, but there was a lady there, and her name was Jenny Craig, <laughs> who uh, is the mastermind behind the diet uh, craze. Um, never thought I'd meet Jenny Craig, but I met her. Um, but the other person there sitting at that table was the head coach at the time of the Kansas City Chiefs, 
Marty Schottenheimer. And, and so he introduced me to Jenny Craig and, and Marty Schottenheimer, and, and, and then we talked a little bit, and we left. Well, the next morning, I was in the hotel restaurant, and I noticed in the corner of my eye, I was sitting at a table, a man making his way to my table. And I looked up, and it was Marty Schottenheimer. And he, he walked over to my table, made a special effort to walk over to my table. I was sitting by myself reading the USA Today before they went crazy left. And he said, good morning, Brian. How's everything going? And I, it almost moved me to tears. The head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs knew my name. He remembered my name. And I became his biggest fan. <laughs> That's right. Do you realize we can read over this and, and lose sight of the significance of what is being said here? Do you realize the one in whom Hebrews calls the great shepherd, the one in whom 1 Peter 5 calls the chief shepherd, the one in whom we will see next week in our passage is called the good shepherd. If you are one of his sheep this morning, that is, you follow him as shepherd. You follow him in every area of your life. You've submitted to his lordship. Do you realize he knows your name? He knows your name. He knows every individual sheep's name. And by taking on... That vocation as the last day's shepherd, the one prophesied by all the prophets, by taking on that vocation, he's taken on a whole lot of responsibility for you. He's taken on the responsibility for your provision. He is your provider. He will provide you your daily bread that you need to persevere with joy. He has taken on the role of your protector. He is your spiritual protector. He, he has promised to be present with you as any good shepherd will be with his sheep. He has promised his presence. And, and what that means for you is more than now you won't be lonely. Okay? It means much more than that. It means that all that he is as Lord is coming to bear in every situation that you face. His sovereignty, his presence, his authority, it's coming to bear in everything you face as his sheep. He's also taken on, going back to that story of the lost patrol, he's taken on the role as your patrol leader. He's your guide. He's your shepherd. He knows your name. Well, notice in verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. I love that. He doesn't drive the sheep. He leads them. There's no compulsion here. He's leading the sheep because the sheep have eyes to see his goodness and their need for him. And so he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. They recognize his voice. 
Now, how do we hear his voice today? Through the word of God. But they know the voice. There's a sense in which they're addicted to his voice because the sheep recognizes intuitively how dangerous the world is and how vulnerable and ultimately stupid we are as sheep. They hear the voice. Verse 5, on the contrary, a stranger, they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So the, the prophets often promised a day when the true shepherd would come. We could call him, if you want a fancy term, the eschatological shepherd, the last days shepherd, the true and faithful shepherd, the one in whom all other faithful shepherds just merely approximated. Uh, Ezekiel 34, for instance, in that great chapter on this shepherd, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, what's interesting about that prophecy, David had been long dead when this was promised. Israel or Judah was in exile at the time. And he is saying, I'm going to set up David as the shepherd. Is he he affirming some kind of reincarnation? No. This shepherd will come from the line of David, from the family of David, as promised to David. And note this, he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Conversely, all through the Gospels, do you know that who Jesus goes after the hardest? It's not the prostitutes. It's not the drunkards, though they need him, though he will call them to repentance. He in no way minimizes their sin, but the ones he's in most conflict with are the false teachers, the false shepherds. But why? Because it has a trickle-down effect. Of course, we see the same thing with the prophets. When you read Jeremiah, when you read Ezekiel, yes, they go after the sins of the people, but man, they blister the spiritual leaders for being false shepherds. Again, Ezekiel 34, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves. You know what he's saying there? You're not using your vocation for the benefit of the sheep. You're using your vocation for self-benefit. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You, You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. But even, Jesus says, when they do get in, Um, by the walls in some way, the sheep would never follow them, the true sheep, because the sheep only follow the voice of the shepherd. And so this gives us certainly insights into the true shepherd versus false shepherds, but it also gives us insight into sheep. True sheep flee false teaching. I know of Christians who are in churches where the word of God is not preached. I know it. I saw it in Louisville. I won't even speak about Auburn. I can pick on Louisville because I'm not there anymore. But I saw it in Louisville. 
The word of this particular church is not priests. Principles are given. Principles for self-help, which basically you're teaching them how to be their own messiahs, which is a, the spirit of antichrist. But the word of God is not taught. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the engine behind their sermons. But we go there because they have a wonderful youth group. Lord God, help us. Jesus is exposing that that might be a person who's not a true sheep. He's saying here the true sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. True sheep flee false teaching. True sheep, because they've been given the Holy Spirit, can discern truth. And charlatans can't. If an unbeliever is sitting here today, they, they, they really can't discern whether I am speaking the truth or not. But true sheep can. And the fact that they could not discern true teaching um, is betrayed by the fact they could not understand what he's saying here. Notice in verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. So he's using an analogy. Right? He does that a lot, parables, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Verse 6 is telling because verse 6 is proof of what he just said in verse 5. Those who are not true sheep can't understand the words of the, sheep, of the shepherd. And because they don't understand, Jesus is going to give them another analogy. He's going to create another scenario. Of course, it's the same central message. So we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the true shepherd of the sheep. In verses 7 to 10, we see that not only is he the shepherd of the sheep, he's the door of the sheep. Look at me in verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, the setting of verses 7 to 10 differ from the setting in verses 1 to 5. There, it was a community village setting. And now, Jesus is using an illustration uh, that would take place in the open country where shepherds would lead the sheep, especially in the summer, to graze. So they would have this area in the summer months where they would graze, and then the shepherd would sleep out in that open field with the sheep. And so overnight, these sheep were placed into this round, kind of stone-walled enclosure. Um. And, and so what you see here is that inside this enclosed, uh, round kind of stonewalled enclosure, the sheep were safe as long as the entrance was secured by the shepherd. And in this figure of speech, uh, Jesus interestingly says, I am the door. Now, don't overlook the I am statement. Jesus says for the third time, I am. 
The first time he said, I am the bread of life. In other words, he's the one by whom your spiritual hunger will be fed. And then we saw in John 8, I am the light of the world. He is the one in whom the darkness is overcome in your life. And now he uses another figure of speech and a third I am statement, I am the door. Of course, the I am identifies him with Yahweh. He is the the God of Exodus 3. When Moses says, what is your name? He says, I am that I am. And then he adds a predicate to it. I am the door. Jesus is saying he is the only door through whom people may enter and be protected, preserved, and saved. Old Testament scholar George Adam Smith tells a story of one time he was in the Middle East and he came across a shepherd with his sheep and he engaged the shepherd uh, in conversation. And and Smith asked him, where do you keep them at night? And he showed him uh, this this little enclosure he had built, uh, had four walls, um, had an opening uh, in, in those four walls And uh, the shepherd said, yes, and this is where I keep them. And when they're in there, they're perfectly safe. But but Smith noticed that there's no door. There's no door uh, to, to this structure that you've built. And the shepherd looked at him, and he said, I am the door. I'm the door. And then Smith asked, what do you mean? And the shepherd said, when the light has gone, when it's gotten dark... And all the sheep are inside. I lie in the open space. And no sheep ever goes out but across my body. And no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. And that's what Jesus means here. I think that's essentially what he means. In order to go into the field, you must go through Jesus. And he will be your protector. He will be your door. Why? Well, notice the definite article, the door. He's the only door because he's the only God man. In order to be your protector and your savior, he must be God. But in order to be your substitute, he must be a man. He's the only God man. People have a hard time with this exclusive claims of Jesus. Well, if you're, if you're the God man, you can make exclusive claims. He's the only one who, who can protect you from your greatest problem, which is God's wrath. He does that by propitiating God's wrath. He's the only one who's ever been bodily raised from the grave. That's why Jesus is the only door. And for those who hate the idea of one way of salvation. It betrays the fact that they don't really see the reality of their need. When I was in two-a-day practices, and many of you have been through those, I don't think they do them anymore. Um, We did two-a-days, and my freshman year in college, we did three-a-days. That's a hopeless feeling. You get through one practice, you go, we've got two more today. But I didn't complain when it came time to water break and the only water source was tap water. I didn't complain because I knew my need. 
I needed water. Uh, my sister-in-law, Audrey, who has cancer, does not complain that there's only one treatment that can preserve her life right now. The fact that the scoffers hate this idea, it just betrays the fact that at the end of the day, their real issue is the Scripture's verdict on their sin. To say, I need this Savior is to say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Well, notice in verse 8, Jesus says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now, he's alluding primarily to Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 because those are the great texts from the prophets that speak about the shepherd. Now, there's other texts as well, a lot of texts. Um, but he's speaking about those who didn't feed the sheep. They were false shepherds, and ultimately they were responsible for why Israel went into to exile. Let me give you one text, Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Je Jesus, though, is directly addressing these, these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders who had treated the blind man in John chapter 9 so horribly. Um, when you do a kind of a systematic study of the Pharisees, let me just give you some thoughts about the Pharisees. Uh, Luke 16, the Pharisees loved money. Uh, 16, 14, Luke 16, 14. They were covetous uh, group. They, they loved money. They were in it for the money. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 40, they took advantage of poor widows who would give the very little that they had. Uh, Matthew 21, uh, we saw it in John 2. Uh, they had turned the temple into a, a den of, of thieves and robbers. And ultimately, we'll see this in John 11, uh, they would plot to kill Jesus so that Rome would not take away their privileges. That's the kind of people they were. But Jesus says the sheep, the true sheep, will not listen to them. Most um, evidently was the, the, the blind man who had been, who'd had his, uh, his sight restored. He didn't listen to them. Those who belong to Jesus, the true shepherd, can discern the difference between teaching of the word of God and false teaching. Well, verse 9, I am the door. He says it again. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I think the two important phrases here, I am. Now, why is that important? Because he is ascribing deity to himself. He is equal in essence and power and glory to the Father. He is the God of, of um, the burning bush. He says, I am. This means that he has the right and he has the might to preserve, protect, and save. And in other words, even though he is the only way to be saved, that one way is opened up, and that brings us to the next phrase, to anyone, to anyone uh, who enters by him. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And you see here, uh, the two benefits of those who come through Jesus. First of all, this person will be saved. 
Now, what does it mean to be saved? Well, what I'm going to say to you here is countercultural. Ultimately, it means to be saved from God. That's your biggest problem. I know that's perhaps a, a kind of a, a weird thing to say. But God's wrath on your sins, your biggest problem. He saves us from God for God. You see my point? God wants a relationship with us, but he, he can only have that relationship if the alienation between him and sinners is resolved. And Jesus deals with that issue by taking the wrath we deserve. So he saves us from God's wrath. He saves us from our sin. He saves us from the power of the devil. That's what it means to be saved for those who would trust in him. But notice as well, uh, not only does he save us, he promises satisfaction. This person will go in and out and find pasture. That means that not only will we be saved and safe, we will be satisfied. You know, many people fear that when they come to Christ, that ultimately he will be a killjoy. And the reason I know that is that I talk to a lot of college students, not our college students, gratefully. But there are many college students on this campus who were raised in churches. And what they'll tell you is, I know I need to get right with God, but these, I'm a college student. I only have one chance to be a college student, so I'm, more, I'm sowing my oats. You know, I'm, 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 this is my time to play. And you know what that college student is saying? Ultimately, he is saying, I know uh, intellectually that I need Jesus, but I don't believe he can actually provide me true joy and pleasure. And so I'm going to turn from him for a time and sow my wild oats. And then once I get out of college, I'll come back to him. Well, I want you to know this. Jesus is not your killjoy. He is such a a good shepherd, he, though he has come to kill the things that do kill your joy. And, and that's what Jesus is saying here when he says this person uh, will come in and out. And then as we see here in verse 9, um, he will find pasture. That's what he meant when he said in John four thirteen, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. And that gets at the heart of verse 10 as we come to a close. In a very important verse for us all, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the thief here, yes, is the false teachers. But I believe behind the, the, the false teachers is a greater power, the devil himself, who only comes for one reason, to kill, steal, and destroy. Our problem is we reverse that in our flesh. We believe that it's Jesus who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's come to kill, steal, and destroy my pleasure and my joy, but the world offers me abundant life. This completely a reversal of what Jesus is saying. He's the one who promises abundant life. And so as we come to the table... I want us to think about something um, concerning this promise of abundant life. We sang it this morning. James Brown Trio sang it. We read it in scripture this morning. 
Psalm 23, which is the great psalm on what the shepherd provides. But he only provides for those who truly follow him. So let's just go through Psalm 23 as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh Rohi. That's the, that's the name right there. The Lord is my shepherd. This is the, the confession of one who follows him. It, this isn't a, a blind promise to every single person. You've, you see this read at funerals. But it can only be true for those who believe at funerals, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Now, what does that mean? That means he is committed to your protection provision. He's committed to be present with you. He's committed to guide you and lead you, which means if you don't have him as shepherd, you don't have any of these benefits. He's promised relationship. I shall not want. What does that mean? He has promised supply. You shall not want for anything you need for joy, for abundant life. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He's promised you rest. Isn't that what your heart longs for, rest? We live in a world that is so broken. Our hearts long. He has promised rest. He leads me beside still waters. He promises you refreshment. He will give you everything you need for refreshment. He restores my soul. Do you know your biggest problem is your soul is broken? It's broken by sin. And the shepherd is in the process of restoring the souls of those who follow him. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He's promised to guide you. And it's a righteous path that he guides you for his name's sake. The ground of our hope is that the shepherd has a holy jealousy. He has a holy jealousy for his name, and that benefits his sheep. His name's on the line, in other words. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, notice it's a shadow for the believer because the true believer cannot die ultimately. We'll see that in John chapter 11. But it's also a time of testing that God does because he loves us. I will fear no evil. He promised protection. For you are with me. He promises his presence. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He comforts us even as he disciplines us. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He's promised his care as the good shepherd. You anoint my head with oil. Consecration. He has consecrated us to his purposes and his good plan. My cup overflows. He promises abundance. He promises more abundant life than anything you could ever imagine. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That reminds me of a story that Adrian Rogers told. There was a man who was truly born again, but he had physiological issues. And, and so he got paranoid and he came in to see Adrian and, and, and he said, Pastor, I think there's two men following me. And Adrian says, I know they are. Their names are goodness and mercy. They follow you all the days of your life. And that should comfort us. He has promised his blessing. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. That's security. Security forever. That's eternity. That's eternity. That's what, that's the abundant life the good shepherd promises his sheep. If you're not one of his sheep, 
You're not promised any of that. In fact, you won't have any of this. Speaking of the the table, though, we come to the Lord's table, which above all else preaches to us that the Lord shepherds us to the point of laying down his own life to protect us from our greatest enemies. And again, as I said, the greatest enemy of all is our sin and God's judgment on our sin. And the Lord Jesus, our great shepherd, comes and he lays down his life so that that wrath can be averted. And that's what we remember at the table. We remember what Jesus has done for us. And in so doing, he can promise us all that Psalm 23 promises for all of his sheep. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.